You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Precision Powerlifting Systems. I'm going to cover a video today. I'm titling it Creating a System, but this will be a series of videos where I'm going to talk about developing your own system of athletic development. And this will cover like a lot of the long-term training implications that I feel are very important and things to consider um, when we start coaching each individual. So I think in powerlifting, especially when I first started, so even though you know, through undergrad and graduate school when we were learning like the programming concepts, you're reading a lot about long-term athletic development from youth sports all the way through elite competition, let's say like through the Olympics, right? And you learn even once they become more senior athletes, the development that they go through between each Olympic training cycle. So each four-year period of time as they're trying to develop their skills to be the elite of the elite and end up on a podium at the world's biggest sporting event. When I get into powerlifting, so even with that background of education, when I get into the sport of powerlifting, it became this question in the back of my mind, how important is long-term training? And at the time, I didn't think it was that important, right? So I realized the importance of flexibility and adaptability within a training program and each individual bringing something a little bit different to that training program, right? Everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses and things need to be adjusted and certain things need to be worked on and whatever it is. And I had these ideas that I could just be flexible and adaptable all of the time. And over time, the long-term training plan would kind of write itself. The problem with that is you end up dealing with a lot of noise and you don't really have a compass that's guiding the, that's guiding that, uh, the journey for the lifter. So the longer that I've coached, and I've been fortunate enough that a lot of my lifters have been with me for four or more years. So I have a good group of lifters that have been with me for what would be considered an entire Olympic training cycle, which is a substantial amount of time. And I think I'm very fortunate, and maybe not everybody else is as fortunate as me in terms of um, lifters being loyal enough to stick around. I know it can be pretty tough at times. Um, So... The longer that I've coached lifters like that, the more I realize that it's really important to have a long-term plan. And this long-term plan, I'm going to use an analogy that this was in an article and it was explaining the stock market. So a lady is walking her dog. You have the entrance of the park and then you have the exit of the park. So point A, point B. And the lady's walking her dog through the park and the dog's running every which way. It's pissing on itself, sniffing the ass of other dogs walking, jumping on other people walking the other way. Those are the the day-to-day fluctuations, right? So there's a lot of noise within that system there, but ultimately the dog started, the dog and the woman started at point A and they ended up at point B. And now of course you could train that dog to, you know, maybe you go to obedience school and the dog can get from point A to point B a little bit faster. I think there's training analogies that can be made within that analogy for the stock market. Um, but I think we need to understand where we're at now and where we want to go and understand that there is a time component to it. Even though, you know, I think a big argument against Western periodization 
is that it predicts, oh, within six weeks doing a hypertrophy block, you can build hypertrophy within that period of time. And I do think that that is a tad bit misinformed, but at the same time, there are time components to this. For some people, they're gonna learn faster, others are gonna learn slower. Each individual comes with a different learning rate. And on top of that, each individual comes with a completely different background. So I'm gonna rewind things and I'm gonna explain the Russian system a little bit. So from six to eight years old, all the Russians do gymnastics. So if you think of Bernstein's degree of freedoms problem that he came up with in the 1960s. So basically the body has all these degrees of freedom. So it can move in all these different ways. Now, when we're learning a new skill, what happens is, is the nervous system will freeze up some of those degrees of freedom. So because we can move in so many ways, it's such a complex problem for the nervous system to deal with that in order for it to deal with it, what it does is it actually decreases the amount of degrees of freedom. So this is why when you see a beginner learning a skill that they look much more robotic in their movements. It's not very fluid. It's more deliberate. Um, so basically our nervous system makes the problem a little bit smaller by cutting down some of the degrees of freedom that we, need, we typically could have. And then through training, so through practice, our nervous system gets more comfortable, gets more confident, and we start releasing more and more degrees of freedom. Over time, you do this long enough, you start having more fluid actions. So let's just take a simple task of walking. We've all seen a baby learn how to walk, right? They fall over quite a bit, and they get up, and their legs kind of swing around quite a bit, and they're not really very fluid motions. But now, most of us as adults, when we go out and we go to walk, it's a much more fluid motion. We can even sprint, we can even jog. There's, you know, jump, skip. There's all these different skills that we've been able to build off of that base of just learning how to walk, right? It all starts there. We can't sprint, we can't jog, we can't skip, we can't do all those other athletic movements without learning how to walk first. So each fundamental movement is kind of laying the foundation to build future skills with. So gymnastics for six to eight years old, six to eight year old kids, what it does is it allows them to develop certain movement coordination skills. So it's building that very basic foundation. So not only, obviously by that age they can walk, but they're learning how to do like somersaults and other body movements, pushing and pulling their own body weight. So they're starting to build some really fundamental skills. After that point in time, they have schools. And in these schools, one of the topics, one of the subjects could be powerlifting, let's say. So you have a youth athlete goes into this school to become a powerlifter. In the beginning, it's all GPP work. It's all general physical preparedness. So it's very just basic movements, maybe with weights, maybe without, it might be body weight. Maybe they start kind of messing around with like PVC pipes to learn the movements, maybe not. But over time, what happens is, the GPP work becomes much more specific and then more specific and then more specific. And this goes on through years. So by the time you have a Russian lifter who's competing, let's say at nationals, right? They're 21, 22 years old, they're still a junior, but they've been lifting and they've been building this base, let's say, and lifting weights from the time that they were six years old, right? So let's say their formal training in actual power lifting started when they were 10. By the time they're 20, 21, 22, that's 10 or more years of building fundamentals that they have. So the programs that we tend to take, right, when we look at like Detmar Wolf's programs or Boris Shako's programs, 
or any of the Eastern European countries when you look at their programs and you're like, okay, there's a lot of specificity, there's a lot of frequency, and there's a lot of overall volume. Now the thing is, is the lifters doing that, that's for the national team. They started down with gymnastics from six to eight and then slowly building a base up to the point of that program. But we see this program work at a high level and we all want that same program no matter where we are in terms of our development. So we take this higher frequency, more specific program and we throw it at a bunch of lifters. So the thing about America is we have a vast population, right? So we have, lifters that come from a strong athletic background and lifters that come from no athletic background and everything in between. So when you take these higher level programs like that that were built for national team members in other countries and you throw it at everybody, the ones who tend to have that stronger athletic background tend to do extremely well on these programs, right? They're the ones who start, their totals start blowing up, they're winning national championships, world championships, whatever. And then we see this because of Instagram and the internet and stuff. And then we automatically think no matter where we are within our development that this is the program we should be doing. So we need to do more specific stuff. We need to do higher frequency stuff. But what we lose sight of is all of the stuff that had happened in that person's life before they got to the point where they're using a highly specific program. So even something like Shaco's programs where he uses 60% of the volume is variation, but it's the same foot width. Same bar position for squats. Same, if you pull conventional, you always pull conventional. Same grip width for bench press. So there's not a lot of variation within the actual variations themselves. And that can work because the Russian national team members have built a really strong foundation by the time they get into um, Shaco's programs. So for us, we have to move things around quite a bit more because we need to develop certain areas and we need to really put our concentration in those areas in order to get the results that we're looking for. And I'm going to explain all of that in a minute. So again, just to kind of reemphasize what we end up getting here is we chase programs that the best are doing, right? And that even stems from, okay, so the Russians back in the day when they're dominating the sport, they're using these programs. So let's take these programs. We throw it at our lifters, the ones with really strong developmental backgrounds do really well on it. And then everybody sees that and we all want that program. So there's not really a long-term athletic development program for the sport of powerlifting in America. And which is understandable because it's a very new niche sport. It's not in the Olympics. It's probably not something the majority of people care about. But if you take something like soccer, which is the world's most popular sport. So when you're four or five years old and you start playing the sport, they play at the time when I was doing it, it was three on three on a really small field with a very small ball, no goalies and smaller nets. And there are reasons for all of this. So the smaller field, requires them to be more involved within the game itself because there's not a lot of places to go. So they're always involved in the play. That's why it's only three on three and not 11 on 11. Because if it was 11 on 11, the more shy kids would be left out of the mix. Three on three, they're forced to participate. The smaller ball allows them to learn how to adjust their feet to approach the ball to strike it. If it was a larger ball, they'd have to approach it in a different way and the actual strike of the ball would be very different. If there were goalies in the net, it would deter kids from actually shooting on goal because they would see the kid there and, they, and they're going to be aware that they, don't, that they don't have a ton of power within their shots or they don't have a ton of direction 
with their shots and they don't want to be shown as a failure in front of their friends or whatever it is. So if there's a goalie there, they're going to be more apprehensive to actually take a shot. So without goalies, they get more of that. They're obviously adjusting their feet to approach the smaller ball, to hit the smaller ball towards the goal more frequently. Smaller field, they get to play more. And then as you get older, it starts to expand a little bit. So by the time you're 10 years old, the fields are a little bit bigger. The goals are a little bit bigger. There's now goalies in there. There's a few more people on the field. And then over time, as you continue to develop, it's 11 on 11 on a international size field, international size goals, ball, all of that stuff. So there's a long-term athletic development program for sports like that. Basketball has it, baseball has it, right? T-ball to coach pitch. There's, there's a process of developing a skill within the major sports within America. There's just not that with powerlifting. And I do think a major um, piece of this is we just don't have the professional structure coming from coaching the same way that Eastern European countries do. So in Russia, somebody like Boris Shako, He's a sports scientist, so they actually do research at nationals. They hooked up computers and they analyze bar path of all the national level lifters and and they do a lot of that type of stuff. So a lot of them tended to be Olympic level athletes who then became sports scientists. And this is going through schooling and then become coaches. So there's a, a lot of professional development happening from the professional coaches at the highest levels there. And they start with the youth and they work their way up. Where here you can have a coach that has no formal education in the field, that has very limited or no experience. I mean, there's plenty of online powerlifting coaches that have never even coached a powerlifter in person before. And I think there's something like I coached powerlifters in person for a little over five years before I took the majority of it online and I still coach a group in person. And I think me seeing that play out in front of my face and I do think there is something to be said for being able to do those things. Um, but that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other thing. But then we get these coaches without the same professional development, and they just don't understand the bigger picture of things. So what ends up happening is it just becomes a program stacked on top of a program. There is no long term development. The long term development just becomes an excuse for a coach to be like, oh well, we don't want to push hard, or when things aren't going well, they can kind of just redirect the conversation to be like, oh no, this is what we want. We need to be patient. And yes, that stuff is important, but it's. <laughs> It's having a system so that you can understand when that's the right answer and when you kind of need to adjust things to kind of understand where things are going. And what it turns out to be, I think the commercialism of powerlifting coaching, it turns into, we need to get these five pound PRs so this person doesn't quit with me and I'm out of business type of thing. So it just becomes this race to the next PR. And in doing so, what ends up happening is their long-term athletic development just gets completely thrown aside. And in most cases, I think there's an ignorance to it and they just don't understand how to develop somebody over a longer period of time because they don't have the education and the experience that they can put together into a nice formal program. And even for me, so I've been coaching, I've been an athlete at the highest of levels for over 30 years of my life. I've been coaching for 17. I have an undergraduate degree. I have a graduate degree. I have all of this experience. I'm now just understanding the concepts that I learned in 2001 when I started college. Um, I think powerlifting is a cool sport as a coach because you see these things play out because your coaching is actually the sport at the same time. So like I've spent time in division one weight rooms. I interned at Harvard 
And when you're giving out the programs there and you're coaching the programs there, you don't really know how your programs are actually helping them on the field, right? You can try to logically connect these dots, but you just don't really know. With powerlifting, you see it in front of your face. And the longer you coach somebody, the more you realize there's a lot of nuance to this. There's a lot of nuance to each individual. Each person is their own complex problem. And then developing high performance is a complex problem in and of itself. So I think these things are really important um, to understand. So when we're developing a system, obviously we're not gonna have somebody for 15 years that we can just build from PVC pipes up unless you're in a position where you have some you know, youth athletes that are coming to you and you can start them just like the Russians would or something around that age. The Greeks do kind of narrow it down to like a, a smaller time period where like from one year you gotta kind of do these exercises and build these things and then from there they build upon the program so it's a little more inundated and something that's a lot more I think applicable to and this is Greek weightlifting, not powerlifting. And this is something that's a little bit more applicable to us and the people that we have in front of us. So the first step in creating a system is identifying, number one, where you are now, and number two, where you want to go. So to go back to that analogy, the entrance of the park, the exit of the park. Okay. So for us, we're a high-performance powerlifting club. So one of the things that I tell people is like, hey, we're serious about what we're doing here. This isn't, yes, it's fun, but it's not just for fun. We, the fun that we take from this sport, we're trying to learn life lessons. We're going to try to give our, our all to something, fully commit to something, and it's going to help develop our character as well as our total. Like it's a, it's a much larger process. And so with this larger process, I'm trying to convince people that this is a more serious long-term plan where I think in a lot of cases you get lifters that'll reach out and they'll be like hey can you write me a program for 12 weeks so I can do my competition then or there are these apps that are coming out run the same program as this national champion lifter and it's like that's 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 kind of defeats the purpose and it cheapens I think the the professionalism of coaching so what we need to do is we need to identify where each lifter is so there are some people who will start and they're just, maybe they have more experience within the sport or they're just better at the sport or they have a greater athletic background. So I've had lifters that have played sports in college, maybe not at anything higher than like division three or whatever. And I've had lifters who've never done anything physical in their lives until they decided to pick up a barbell, which is pretty cool that we have that range of people participating in the sport. But where they're beginning at in their development is going to be very, very different. So, identifying where they are, right? We, we see their lifts, we see their numbers, and we're like, okay. And when you analyze their lifts, you need to analyze the physical and technical aspects of their lifts. So let's say they're squatting with their feet really tight. It's kind of high. The bar, the bar is high bar. The bench is a really close grip. And the deadlifts, they're just not taking the slack out of the bar or something like that. Like there's a, there's a lot of things you're looking at. It's like, okay, they like to be really narrow with their feet. It means we're probably going to really target the low back, the hips, the hamstrings, build up that area there um, to get the grip wider, the shoulders the pecs of course always triceps um, and then the deadlift we got to work on some technical things there some learning how to load the hips learning how to take the slack out and really kind of balance gravity before you start to start to pull like there's all kinds of physical and technical things we need to work on there and then of course mental so what I've realized is when I first started 
coaching technique was the foundation of everything. I still believe that. But what lifters would do is they would get into this mindset that the next rep had to be perfect technique and if it wasn't they would get down on themselves so developing the mental aspects of training i think becomes even more important and needs to be developed before you start worrying about really hammering home technique you can get them lifting and put them into good positions with the variations the loads you're using and all that stuff but developing that mindset becomes more of the priority um and they kind of go hand in hand. It's not like you just train one and then the other. Um, but the main focus should be on developing that mindset more than anything else and giving them feedback on the technique to create maybe a frustration sometimes to start having those conversations and start getting them comfortable with just learning how to lift. Stuff like that can be really important in the beginning. But of course, there's just like an art to putting this all together. And we'll go over some of that um, in other videos. So then DST, this is dynamic systems theory, dynamical systems theory. This is the theory that I kind of utilize within my programming. So you have your athlete, you have your environment, and you have your task. And now each one of those, so the athlete themselves, right, they have mental and physical pieces that make them up. They have their own perceptions, beliefs, language, emotions, all that stuff, right? So there's a lot of things going on with the individual. The environment, each person that we have, they're involved in multiple environments, right? So of course they have, if they have a lifting group that they lift with, right? Their lifting environment. And as coaches, I think we latch onto that so much, but their home environment, right? Where they're spending the majority of their time, their work environment. Um, and any other social environments and stuff like that. There, there's a reason why like communism works really well for developing athletes because they can control their entire environment, right? They give them housing, food, all of those things. And then they place them around like-minded elite level athletes so that they can feed off of one another. Pro sports here in America is very similar to that. They live together during the season, all that stuff, right? They get days where they go home and stuff. So there are other environments that we need to consider and each level down of the highest of levels has probably a more, a greater range of environments that we need to be aware of. And then the task is basically the exercise that we're doing within the gym, the exercises that we're doing within the gym. Um, and we'll get into the nitty gritty of that stuff a little bit more um, later on. But the before I erase this, so if I'm going to go over the physical and bio, the physical, technical, the biomechanical aspects of lifting. So we know that strength equals force times distance, right? It's a very simple equation. So I can apply more force or I can shorten the distance to improve my strength. So when I think of the biomechanics of lifting, one of the things that I really believe is that if we can minimize the range of motion of each lift to the best of our abilities and really build up those areas, we're going to have the highest ceiling later on. So it helps us in a couple of ways. A shorter range of motion is just easier to recover from. But again, if you manipulate the distance, you can apply the same force and move more weight. So a shorter distance is just gonna allow us to be stronger over time. This doesn't mean we squat, multiply wide for raw lifters. Um, I'm talking like a wide stance raw squat, so heels slightly just outside of shoulders, low bar position, right? I know people hate when I say this, but arching the back actually keeps the bar over the middle of the foot. It resists some spinal flexion. So your, your spine's going to flex in the whole of the squat no matter what you do. And at the bottom of a deadlift, when we extend our spine 
on the way down. We can limit the amount of flexion and keep the bar more over our center of gravity. Um, and when your feet get out a little bit wider, you're kind of forced to spread the floor, which actually shortens the length of your femur. Um, so even like the forces applied there can make it a, a shorter lift. Um, and to me, that's what we want to do. So a wider grip on a bench press, big arch. Um, everybody should learn how to pull sumo and that should be your strongest one over time. And of course that doesn't always happen. So like Alyssa's got a big pull and she's put a ton of deadlifts on, I mean a ton of weight onto her deadlift. She still pulls conventional, but we've brought her sumo up to getting really close to where her conventional is. I think it's now within 30 pounds. And for a time period, it was like 200 pounds difference. So they both kind of feed each other and can build each other up because there are physical components of each one. So sumo deadlift is going to train, train the lockout of a conventional deadlift. Um, it also kind of teaches you how to load the hips because it's easier in that sumo position. But I think there is a learning process that has to happen with the conventional with that too. So the technical component, sort of, sort of not. And then the mental aspects. So the mental aspects need to be trained right away. So they need to start developing a training skill. They need to learn awareness, right? That mindfulness, right? The judgment-free letting go to let it rip underneath the barbell, like allowing proprioception to do its thing and understanding that conscious deliberate action is for math and crossword puzzles, not for high level performance. So there's this mindset that we need to train not only just with the judgment free aspect of training so that we can make the best decisions, but also reflecting daily on training because self-reflection builds self-awareness, which increases self-regulation and training skill at the end of the day is understanding self-regulation and knowing which adjustments to make because there's not emotions involved in that thinking because you're, you're self-aware from all that self-reflection and you can self-regulate in the appropriate manner. There's a lot that needs to happen there. Um, and so we need to find opportunities within training to train that stuff. And that's, again, that's kind of where the art of coaching comes in. So for us, when we're doing it, how long do you plan it for, right? You think of the Russian schools and you're like, all right, well, I don't have 15 years, right? So I think in the first, you know, one to three years of a lifter's training, the goal should be to start getting them into the positions they need to with the right mindset, right? And it does, it takes on average for the amount of people that I've coached to go from a really tight, narrow stance squat to a wider stance squat where they're hitting their bigger numbers in a wider stance squat, on average about two years. So depending on their backgrounds and stuff like that, there is a lot of development that needs to happen and that's gonna be the focus of it. Not necessarily to hit PRs, I mean they're beginners and they're going to hit PRs anyways, but to making sure that we're developing the PRs in the right positions. Um, and I think that's a really important concept um, to consider. And um, I'll probably break that down a little bit more in another video, because I think it can be a lot more specific. But so what I tend to do is I tend to plan things out in six month macro cycles. And we break them up into phases. So we have phase one, two, and three. And then within each phase, they're four to eight weeks long. So we tend to have each wave tends to be a month. So we got uh, 
Let's do this. It's really small, so to see it. So let's say we get a six month period of time, right? So we got January, February, March, April, May, June. Okay. To July. So let's, you know, July 1st. So we're not getting through the whole month. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna have phase one, deload. Phase one, wave two, deload. Phase two, wave one, deload. Phase two, wave two, deload. Phase three, and I'm gonna break down um, phase three in a, in a second here, okay? So we got one, one, two, two, and then three. Okay, so every, so these are all three weeks long, each phase, three weeks long. And then this here, these spots here are week four, which we get lower frequency, lower volume. So we do 80% comp lifts um, for doubles or triples, four or five sets. It's a pretty, pretty light week. Um, and this is basically what six months will end up looking like. So phase one, there are no heavy deadlifts. So it's a lot of submaximal deadlift work and it goes upper lower split. So day one, they'll do their squat max effort and then their exercises. Day two, their bench max effort and their exercises. Day three will be uh, squat and deadlift submaximal work. Day four will be bench press submaximal work. And then week two, instead of max effort day one and day two, they'll have submaximal work based off of the max effort of week one. And then week three, we bring in the max effort again on days one and two. And we try to beat what we did week one by five pounds. So each time we do that in a phase, what we're trying to do is create these mini peaks so that over time, what you end up seeing, let's say we got week one, week three, right? Week one, week three, week one, week three. So you, you start to see these, these mini peaks. And over time, what you wanna to start to see is an upward trend of those mini peaks. And there's like reasons for it too, like the dopamine blast for the motivation. And it just puts the training process in these really small snippets so that they can start realizing the importance of technique because I'm putting it in the middle. And when they do things well and they make good decisions, they're rewarded with a PR. So it helps the process kind of develop itself over time. Phase two, now we add in heavy deadlifts. So they'll get max effort deadlifts week one and week three with some maximal work in the beginning and some maximal work that tends to be a little bit less um, than what we're doing percentage wise for the squats and the bench press. And then phase three. So phase three without a competition, I hold it four weeks. And in that four weeks, we'll end it. So week three of that, we'll do our deadlift, competition deadlift max effort. And then the following week will be a three-day week, squat max effort, day one, bench max effort, day two, light deadlift work and submaximal bench work, day three, rest, day four. And then we'll cycle back around. So phase two, we change the frequency a bit. I know I'm bouncing around a little. So now in phase two, day one and day two stay the same, but day three is submaximal bench work and then max effort deadlift works work week one and three with submaximal bench, submaximal deadlift work week two. And then day four on phase two is submax deadlift and squat volume. So they get about 50 lifts on that day. So it's a really high volume day. So one of the things that we're trying to do is 
have certain high, medium, and low stress training days. And we can break that up because the intensity of those days drives different physiological pieces than the volume days. But there are cumulative effects of like these, these overreaching fatigue things that build up, which is why we have these large drops every fourth week to kind of let some of that fatigue go away so that we hit the next cycle a little bit fresh. And even then week one of the fresh cycle, we're a little bit more conservative because they're told to leave five to 10 pounds out there. And there are strategies that we implore with each individual based off of the way that they actually um, are recovering and things going on in their lives. So sometimes one of the things that I might do with a lifter is week one, just be a lot more conservative. Instead of leaving five to 10 pounds, let's leave 20 pounds, right? Just get a feel for it. Get something heavy so you can kind of see something break down. You get a feel for it. Um, you get something to work on the following week. And then you hit that five pound PR in week three from week one and then make another jump. Um, the things you got to be careful there are you do need to challenge yourself and it becomes very easy to just hit an easy five pound PR and walk away, which isn't what we're always looking for. It can also be easy to end up taking too many singles on week three, because let's say you hit that five pound PR and you add 10 pounds and it's easy. And then you add 10 pounds and all of a sudden you've done so many singles, the fatigue factor is a little bit high and you haven't really challenged yourself to the way that you, you should be with the top end weights because load does matter with this stuff. So one of the things as we're going through this is specificity. Oop, just erase July. Specificity in early phases starts low. Okay, so as we go through, so this might be first phase, cameraed bar box squats with chains or something like that. But as we go further along, our max effort work is gonna become a little bit more specific. So the loads will start pretty low, the actual like bar weight, and it gradually increases as we go through the program. So basically we're climbing specificity with max effort over the course of six months. So that by the time we're at the last week of phase three and we're hitting those comp lifts, we've kind of gradually exposed the lifter to all these various different loads under various different conditions at a bunch of different angles. And we should see some adjustments to how they're attempting the comp lifts mentally and physically. And we should start kind of seeing some of the stuff build up. And then you get a good gauge of how well everything's working. You analyze it and you start back over. So in terms of our submaximal work, it's progressed in a very individualistic manner. So based off of their recovery, they put last set RPE and I, I look at their videos and I look at the performance on max effort lifts and I kind of make some adjustments based off of that. The younger a lifter is in terms of training age, the more conservative I am about jumping loads. They don't really need to constantly increase training load because right now you're probably try just trying to overload efficiency. You're trying to get them a little bit more efficient and a little bit more stable in terms of um, how they're performing each repetition. So there's not as much variability that you can see from the naked eye from rep to rep. Um, so we're, you know, and in the beginning too, they probably need to be a little bit deliberate in their actions to think about things. And then over time, that deliberate action has to let go um, to them having that mindfulness underneath the bar and just letting things happen. Um, so where they are in their development is <laughs> depending on how we're gonna kind of progress some of these things. And somebody who's brand new to the sport, who's never lifted before, they don't need a camered bar box squat with chains. You can just use very, very basic 
um, variations in the beginning, just a wide stance box squat. That's enough because it's gonna be hard for them to control their weight to the box. So there's this buildup process. So in that first six months, the goal might be, of course you're trying to get stronger, but it might be, hey, at the end of six months, I wanna see them doing a good box squat, right? So when you think of that first one to three years of development, that might be one thing you look at. All right, this block, I want a good box squat. I want them to, maintain their arch throughout the lift of a bench press, whatever, when you're looking at, um, and then taking the slack out better on a, on a deadlift. So there might be those aspects of lifting that you're kind of looking to develop. And at the end of that six months, so you can throw in phase three as you lead up to the comp lifts, some heavier box squats again and kind of see where they're at. And then you can be like, okay, so they're getting better at the box squat. Now let's challenge that box squat in a different way. Let's give them safety squat bar box squats, still straight weight, whatever, right? And now you're gonna challenge that box squat with just a different bar. And then you can build that up over that, over that six month period of time. So now let's see what their box squat looks like, right? And that, and that now that looks good. And then you can come back around and throw more variation. I'm using random examples. Um, and maybe I'll take like specific lifters and kind of like break them up. So like for Alyssa, we spent two years building up her sumo deadlift. So we didn't do it initially. She was just pulling conventional all the time. And then we realized how far behind it was and we kind of ignored it again. But then eventually when we realized that we shouldn't be ignoring it and we should work on this, it was two years of building up that sumo deadlift. So for the deadlift going through all the, the phases of training that we were going through, there was always a sumo deadlift with very few breaks, just a lot of variation within just really just building it up as if it were the main movement, um, even though she's pulling conventional. Um, but we did spend a lot of time doing that. Um, you know, it also might be you want to put exercises on there that, and I, I do this with lifters sometimes, that they're not going to like. That's going to force them to kind of figure out some mental tools to like, man, I fucking hate safety squat bar box squats. All right, well, here's safety squat bar box squats. Let's, let's learn how to like focus our attention and take that negative and turn it into something positive. Um, so there are times in the program where it may be, I'm not necessarily putting that exercise in there. Of course, the physical development of a closed chain sport like powerlifting is pretty straightforward, especially where you have these like biomechanical heuristics to follow and these like the areas of the lifts that you want to be strongest. So of course it's still a squat and stuff, but maybe it's like, okay, this exercise would be better for physical development, but I want to use this exercise right now because I really want them to be uncomfortable and mentally to be in a, a place where it's like, man, I don't really want to fucking do this exercise, but how do I learn how to develop the tools to give it my full focus, my full effort, my full attention? Because at times it's going to be really hard and you're not going to want to do things and it can start to help kind of develop those skills. And that's where a lot of conversations can come in with me. Like, Hey, why are you lifting? Like, what do you want out of all of this? And eventually they kind of learn how to, they learn to love the things that they don't love. Um, so to speak. So there's a bunch of like just random examples that I threw there, but this just resets itself. So the tough part with powerlifting is you just don't know how long a lifter is going to stick with you. So this just allows us to go, you know, if they compete one to two times a year, six months, right? I think what we run into a lot of times too, is you get a beginner lifter who will start competing two, three, four times a year just because they truly enjoy it. And then what ends up happening is, is all this developmental stuff, right? So it's, the greater the variation, so let's get back to the baby learning how to walk, right? Learning how to walk is that basic fundamental movement that 
sprinting and jogging and skipping and all the athletic movements are built off of because without walking you can't do that right so having variation in the beginning is that so the reason why the Russians are forced to do multiple sports also like during that GPP period of time is because the more skills you develop the more angles that you're forced to be in, the different movements, it helps build you a larger toolbox. So when you get more specific, it's easier to narrow down. And that skill, when it gets narrowed down, is a stronger skill. So what we start is we start with high variation here, and then it gets narrowed down over a six-month period of time. So that when it does get narrowed down, that's a high-level skill. It's the highest level skill we can create within that individual within that period of time. Um, and then this just continues to cycle through. And of course you're looking for, as an athlete develops, and I'm not looking for their box squat technique to get better, I'm just looking for it to get stronger. I can start challenging them in very unique ways. You know, bands, chains, um, all the specialty bars. Like there's a, uh, I have a group that lifts in equipment. Um, there's all different ways that you can challenge the lifter to further their development, further, further their skill enhancement. Um, but it becomes much more process or I mean the process orientation mindset's always there but it becomes more externally outcome driven like hey I can qualify for nationals so let's start putting these numbers on our on our target list so how do we get to these numbers you know here are the weaknesses within the lifts here's the numbers of all our max effort lifts here's what we need to build up here's this six-month block let's see where how much closer it gets us to our numbers um, and it becomes much more driven like that once their technique and stuff is worked out is worked out and their mental aspect is there it's it's much more like let's fucking go let's put some numbers on the board and you're not chasing numbers because that process oriented mindset has already been developed as a fundamental piece of that athlete so now you can focus on those external outcomes because they understand the process they understand how it works they're viewing training from a judgment free standpoint they're letting the results come to them but they're also hitting the gym hard with urgency. They're committed, they're doing all the things they need to do. So we can start having much more externally driven outcomes. That's where we can talk about cutting weight is when you can actually qualify um, for competitions. I think too many beginners are cutting weight when you can't qualify for anything or you can't win anything. Winning a local meet doesn't count, right? So it just, it just hinders your development because now if you're cutting weight, let's say for eight weeks, right? You can't recover the same way. You're not getting the same piece out of training. Maybe you get some nagging stuff popping up. It's just not worth it. The, the weight classes don't exist until you can win something like nationals um, or break a record. So until you can do that, there are no weight classes. You just step on the scale and you lift. If people want to compete more times to develop that competition skill, you got to take much more conservative singles on the platform. Like 90% is thirds, 95% is thirds or just take seconds, right? Don't take thirds. But with the max effort lifts, we can force them to develop that competition skill within the gym without having to spend $100 to compete super frequently or whatever. Because I know Shaco would have his lifters compete four to six times a year for a period of time, but they'd only really peak for one to two. And the others would just be like heavier training days. But they were still very, very manageable weights. The stuff that they're gonna go nine for nine, no problems and be able to recover from pretty, pretty easily. Um, but I think for video one, this kind of covers like a nice little out, outline of um, creating a system like with the program itself. And maybe we'll go into a little bit more of the nuances or I'll pick a specific 
person to kind of talk about, maybe like a fake person even, um, just to get the point across better.